Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of At The Beam. This is Trudy with Josh, and today we're going to continue our quick and dirty dosy series where we discuss quick hits and high points about radiation therapy and treatment planning to help distill a complex topic into one to help you with your everyday clinic life. So Josh, last week we spoke mostly about radiation delivery. I understand we're going to talk about treatment planning today, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Um, I think we talk about this broadly before going to the little details. And what might work best is uh, discussing the planning concepts overall and then delving into both through ECRT planning and then IMRT and VMAP planning. Perfect. Okay, so can you please tell us about the planning process for treatment with radiation therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to begin with planning, we actually have to take a step back and start with simulations. So historically, simulations were a way of planning in that measurements were taken, specifically different patient separations, such as the distance between like the top of the abdomen to the patient's back. And we would use tools like calipers and uh, sometimes even contour the patient surfaces, uh, which we captured using wires or molds and um, would digitize that in and then calculate and predict how radiation could be delivered uh, throughout the body. Um, this would be used in conjunction with 2D X-ray images, which would help us localize the treatments. Um, and these simulation appointments would also be used to help position patients in a way that was uh, best for treatment delivery. You know, generally we used simple reproducible maneuvers, things like moving the arms up and out of the way, or holding the body in place with um, just our different devices. Uh, whole point being to limit movement um, while radiation was being delivered and have something that was reproducible. And we would use things like fact locks and so on. Hmm, I see. So patient positioning is uh, still important, but it seems that simulations nowadays primor- primarily use CT scans. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. So uh, things have advanced quite rapidly, and now CT-based planning is the standard of care in radiation ecology. So this gives us this nice three-dimensional view of the patient, our treatment targets, and the surrounding internal healthy tissue. So we can get a really great sense of what we're treating and how we're treating it. Great. So just as a note for our listeners, while other imaging platforms are great at helping localized tumors such as MRIs and PET scans, the reason CT scans are used are because of its ability to measure density, tabulated as Hounsfield units. This helps us with our dose calculations to help account for the different densities of the different types of tissue that our radiation beams may go through. For example, if we plan on treating on an MR-LINAC, a CT-SIM is still needed in addition to the MR-SIM because we would need this just uh, for this very reason, to calculate the electron density. Yeah, exactly. So if you're, say, planning to throw a baseball to hit a target 30 feet away, but there's this, like, waterfall of molasses you have to go through, and then immediately there's these, like, fans that are pointed towards your target that will carry the ball. Um, It's kind of like going through bone and then going through lungs. So uh, you want to have the proper information uh, to figure out exactly how hard or how soft you want to throw that ball uh, because it won't be the same as throwing it 30 feet in open air. Wow, molasses. How random. (laughs) Where did that come from? I just ate a lot of sugar and I was thinking about molasses. (laughs) Well, also, again, a very good analogy. Um, (laughs) So uh, tell me a little more about this whole process. 
Yeah, so uh, CT scans can help uh, give us that density info on top of helping visualize and localize our target structures and healthy surrounding organs. So as many of us in radiation oncology already know, it can sometimes be a little tough to see our targets or organs at risk using a CT alone. So MRIs and PET scans or any other helpful imaging can really be used as an adjunct and superimposed on top of our CT scan. So when you hear the word fusion, this will describe that process of or overlaying additional diagnostic information. Um, as a side note, you want to make sure that the uh, patient positioning between the two images are similar. Otherwise, those uh, internal organs might not line up properly. Yeah, that's right. Um, but given that this isn't always the case, as patients taking diagnostic images are not often set up in the treatment position, um, like with radiation simulation scans, when we're fusing these diagnostic images, we want to make sure that we fuse them to the area of highest interest, with less concern of areas outside of that that are not aligning well. So for example, if we're training a spine met, you'd probably want to register to bone to help delineate where the spinal cord is. Deformable registrations can sometimes be used as well, where individual pixel data are then matched between two image sets to emulate one compatible position. Yeah, that's right. So if that can be performed reliably, it really gives some great info. So Josh, nowadays in certain cases, we use 4D CTs as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for cases where we worry about internal organ movement, uh, many facilities can capture CT scans in multiple phases throughout the breathing cycle. So basically, you can think of this as 10 different CT sets, each representing where everything is internally every tenth of a breathing cycle. That's right. So these are often used for treatment sites involving the trunk. As we all know, as we breathe, our diaphragm can move our other internal organs quite significantly, and the 4D scans help to capture that movement throughout a breathing cycle. That way, we can understand how tumors may move and ensure our fields will be wide enough to cover everything that may be displaced. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other advantage 40 CTs can offer is actually helping to reduce the amount of tissue that we treat. So if we know where a tumor will be at a specific time point of the breathing cycle, we can also manipulate our beams to only deliver treatments during those specific time points, as opposed to covering larger swaths of uh, the tumor path during breathing. So we can deliver this through gated treatments where the field will close um, from delivering doses at certain points and then open when it's proper. So in our SIMs, they often place BBs just prior to capturing the SIM to aid with setup. Why are we doing that and how are the locations of these BBs selected? Yeah, so those BBs are um, often these tiny radio-opaque markers that'll show up on our CT scan, and it helps us figure out where things are in space on the actual patient. So these BB positions can be marked on the patient's skin. Historically, we would use these tiny tattoo marks, um, but many institutions have been moving away from that and opting to just use ink instead, sometimes covered with a tegaderm. Um, we often use three points at a minimum to be able to triangulate a position so that we can say, hey, you know, at these three points, we know it intersects at, you know, organ X, Y, Z. And if I need to treat something that's 3CM to that left of that organ, I know that if I follow these marks on the patient's surface and then move my beam 3CM to the left, I can localize to what I want to treat. So it really helps us to translate our virtual CT treatment planning data to um, true-to-life uh, directions. So on a actual patient um, using these known points of reference. Tattoos, interesting. So Josh, I heard you had a massive I love mom tattoo on your back. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> Covers the entire back. <laughs> 
Um, okay, yeah, but so back back to the dosy part. Um, <laughs> these markers also help us figure out how to level and rotate a person on the treatment machine itself. So we're able to set them up the same way every day and gives us a good starting reference point to make shifts for where our, we place our isocenter. But I understand you'll be explaining what an isocenter is in a minute, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. So in terms of how locations for these babies are selected, um, typically we'll choose an area of skin that has the least mobility, uh, such as the sternum and ribs or on a head mask or on the hips. Um, ideally, these points will be placed exactly where your target is going to be. So your isocenter could align there, but um, that isn't of the utmost importance. Um, all we really need is a good solid reference, um, a good solid reference point and where to shift from there. Um, of course, you want to be somewhat close to your target area. As you can imagine, the further you get away from that known reference point, the more error you could uh, potentially introduce. So can you explain a little bit more um, what an isocenter exactly is? Because I know it's such a buzzword and we hear it all the time. <laughs> yeah, so um, the isocenter is a, a conceptual, not not an actual point, um, but a point in error. So you can find this point 100 cm from uh, the source of radiation within the lenac, falling down the center of the beam. So the relevance for this is that this is the reference point for many of our dose calculations in our plan. Um, also, this point gives uh, really good mechanical data on issues like clearance, rotation for the fields and table. Um, this is the rotational point for the, the machine itself. And um, it can also provide the therapist with a, a verification point to assure that your setup is played out like you planned. Thanks for that great explanation. Um, I used to think the isocenter should always be placed at the center of our target, but this isn't necessarily true. It makes conceptual sense in that you want your best calculated dose metrics, which occur at the isocenter to match where you're shooting dose at, which is your tumor. But there are certain circumstances where isocenter, where placing your isocenter at the target is not practical. Can you clarify that a little further? Yeah, so uh, we'll calibrate and gather data on our machine output at this 100 cm isocenter reference point. Uh, we then know how much dose uh, should be at that point relative to how many monitor units are output, as well as how to compensate for different tissues or beam modifiers that could be in the way of the beam with our monitor unit calculations. Um, the point I think we had mentioned earlier, this is also where the whole room will rotate around. Um, as the lenac makes a giant circle around our patient, this is that center point. Uh, same for the way our collimators will rotate, as well as our patient table. Um, our team will set up uh, lasers on the wall as a visual way to see where that point is. And that way, when we plan virtually with the CT scan on our computers, we can then translate all of that to be able to map it out onto the actual patient using this isocenter reference point, as well as uh, the BV markers that were placed on our patient. In regards to um, not placing that isocenter directly in the target, we have a lot of good lateralized um, information, lateral dose information, rather. So uh, because things are done in this uh, 3D manner, um, we have a better map of how these doses will play out in patients. So it isn't 100% necessary to have that isocenter right in our target, since we'll know what that organ will get in a 3D manner. I see. Oh, okay. Um, so what what does you know this whole process look like, especially in regards to patient setup? Yeah, so on the machines, there's something called an ODI. Um, I think it stands for Optical Distance Indicator. This is basically a flashlight that is a, a ruler, um, and this sits at the head of the machine. Um, and it'll indicate a specific distance from the source to whatever tissue it hits. So say you set your isocenter in your virtual plan to the crosshairs of your BB, 
your planning system will tell you what that distance is based on where that center is placed uh, to the skin surface um, from the face of the gantry. So say your distance between your chest and the isocenter of your field, uh, which is placed in the tumor, is about 8 cm. You know, you're going about 8 cm deep into your patient. On the surface, you should probably get about 92 cm red. So that way, as a whole, from the isocenter up back to the machine is about 100 cm. So um, we know that 8 cm is intercepted by the patient's body. So this gives you your SSD value of 92 cm, uh, a source to skin measurement. That's what SSD stands for. That your therapist should then be able to ensure is read on the patient's surface to help validate that their setup is accurate to the way we planned it. So they'll see an ODI reading of 92 cm on that chest. And so that way we know that that isocenter point is going to be about 8 cm deep from there on. Hmm. Okay. So um, let's. So we have our CT sim and tumor and OAR data. Let's say everything is contoured out and we've defined in our planning system which, which pixels on the CT represent which organs. We now know how to translate anything that's planned in the virtual system onto the actual patient. What does the dose planning look like from there on? Okay, so once we have our fields, um, we place our ice center like we mentioned and have a way to properly localize it on the actual patient. Uh, we have to decide on the planning methods. So the two most common planning methods are forward planning and inverse planning. Um, this is using your treatment planning system, not hand calcs. So forward planning means you calculate the dose output first from each field, and the dose distribution is you get what you get. Um, you can then evaluate it, go into your dose volume histogram to figure out exactly what organs are getting what dose. Uh, but to modulate the, the values there, you have to manipulate the dose output directly for each field. Inverse planning works in the opposite direction. So our planners will have a list of organs and targets, you know, as they're contoured. And we tell an optimizer in our planning system what doses we want or don't want to those specific contours. Basically, we're telling you what we want our DVH to look like ultimately. And then the program will then tell you what dose output and what MLC patterns that you need to achieve those goals or at least get close to it. So um, the type of planning that you use is going to depend on a number of factors. But in general, the more traditional, simpler method of planning, uh, like your 3D CRT static fields and, say, rest treatments, will use forward planning. And planning that needs active manipulation of the MLCs or gantry angle during treatment delivery is going to require inverse planning. So you can think, you know, more head and neck planning, lung, and so on. So when you're planning, what are the different factors you consider? Yeah, so when it comes to planning in general, you basically want to see where your targets are and where your healthy organs are. Um, we all become familiar with the different dose tolerances of different organs and keep that in mind when we plan where our radiation fields will traverse. So first and foremost, the most important thing is the simulation. So you want your setup to be reproducible, but you also want to give your plans the highest chances of success. So that means if you can get the arms out of the way, um, use motion management, things like 40 CT or deep inspiration or different positioning, things like prone positioning for pendulous breasts or, you know, for breasts that might fall over laterally quite a bit, you can really set yourself up for an optimal plan. You know, we can manipulate doses using your MLCs and beam angles, but there's really only so much you can do on that end and it doesn't make nearly the impact um, that a good sim would. So once your sim looks good and you place a proper isocenter close to your targets in a reproducible manner, just generally speaking, you want to add angled beams to help cover as much of the tumor as possible while limiting intercepting healthy organs. You also want to add enough fields to help reduce the contribution from any one field. You just want to divvy it up. 
um, so that the healthy organs, it intercepts on the way to your target, never really gets a full dose. But uh, you also want to limit the number of fields that you use so that a whole treatment is deliverable and your patient isn't lying on the table for, you know, some 15 some odd beams to be delivered. Where, you know, in that case, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to move and your plan's not going to play out the way it's calculated. And it's really going to take a long time. Um, for forward planning, you then want to manipulate the dose contributions between each of the fields to see what helps with coverage and you know, limit hotspots, reduce healthy organ dose. Um, but with inverse planning, such as IMRT, your field arrangement can um, limit what you can ultimately achieve with the optimizer. So once you got that optimized or got that set up, you want to set upper and lower limits to each organ of importance. So that means adding minimum dose requirements to your target as well as a max dose requirement requirement. And of course, uh, max dose requirements as well as midline dose requirements to your healthy organs. So once the optimizer figures out the best combination of MLC patterns and MU output for each beam, you can then calculate that and evaluate the plan. Now, um, something to keep in mind is that sometimes the optimizer doesn't recognize um, non-contoured areas, and it might dump dose in those spots. So these programs don't really they don't always act intuitively. So you might see your dissymmetrists or physicists adding in what they call tuning structures or shell structures or all these little structures outside of your OARs and um, targets. Uh, these are just different planning structures to help control these points. Great. Very informative. Thank you. Um, another question I have. So sometimes you'll hear different terms such as VMAT and IMRT. What's the difference between the two? So um, VMAP planning is nearly identical to IMRT inverse planning, except that aside from setting up the total number of fields used, you also arrange the angles you want the beams to traverse. So the biggest difference is that VMAT is a type of arc therapy where the lenate gantry will rotate around the patient while also modulating those MLCs or moving the MLCs around. Um, traditional arc therapy doesn't modulate the field dose as you swing around uh, the patient. Um, so you can think of like a 3D CRT is the IMRT as static arc therapy is the VMAT. Um, you can set a start angle and a stop angle, and you can primarily base these on where your targets are and where your, OA, um, your organs at risk are. And you then go into the optimizer and you operate it all in a very similar fashion. You put in your upper and lower limits on all your different organs. You can set weights to you know what you think is more important than, an other, uh, than another and then have the computer system really help you figure it out as you manipulate as you go um, through it. Uh, just as a quick side note for intensity modulation, there are also different ways the MLCs can move to deliver dose. Um, there's a more traditional stop and shoot method. That's where your MLC patterns will step to new patterns, kind of like frames in a movie and dynamic delivery um, that'll move your MLCs while your beam is on. So it accounts for that dose rate. Um, so you can think of this like, um, uh, making a movie using stop motion animation versus live action filming. So they both have the same effect, but ultimately it takes different methods. Great. Um, so after after all of this, you have your planning together. What are the next steps? Yeah. So in our next episode, we'll visit how plans are evaluated, as well as some of the other steps that come in between this process and the actual treatment of the patient. Great. Yay. Um, well, that was fantastic. Thanks, Josh. Um, this concludes our second episode of Quick and Dirty Dosey with Josh. We want to thank Diana No, who's a CMD at Kaiser Permanente Santa Clara, for her review of today's episode. You can find our show notes on atthebeam.com. Be well, and please remember to always trust but verify.